We're going to continue in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you look right there in chapter 1 to verse 13, which is where we're going to be starting this morning, verse 13, it begins with this wonderful word called therefore. A wonderful word called therefore. Therefore is a conjunction. So to put our our third and fourth and fifth grade thinking caps this morning. Hey, this is a conjunction, right? It's putting things together. Therefore is joining, like the words if and but and and. It's joining verses one, verses 1 through 12 to 13 through 21. And the principle of hermeneutics, whenever you see a word like this at the beginning of a of a new section or a new paragraph that is telling us that something very important is happening. Something is about to be said that is very, very important based upon what has already been said that is very, very important. The most famous of all the therefores in the Bible comes from Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, how could Paul make such a claim that sinners could stand before a holy and righteous God with no condemnation whatsoever? That would make no sense if you read it by itself, but therefore, joining to Romans 1 through 7 shows us the explanation of God's sovereign work to justify sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ, and I know I'm simplifying Romans 1 through 7, but is this, this word is massively important in bringing these things together and including within 1 Peter to show us our position before God. So, therefore, is pointing back to all of the truthful, the truthful facts, the indicatives that Peter has been telling us and wanting us and his readers to know, these suffering Christians to know, right? To know who they are in Christ, that they are the elect, the chosen by God. Yes, they are exiled strangers in this world, according, yet according to the foreknowledge of God, they are elect, they are saved by the Holy Spirit, having been atoned for by the blood of Christ, verse 2. By God's great mercy, he has caused them, he has caused us to be born again. To what? To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a glorious inheritance that will not, cannot, shall not be shaken. Verses 3 through 5. They, we, rejoice even in our suffering because faith is being tested for genuineness, so that even now, though we do not see him, we believe in him because of faith and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, verses 6 through 9. And then we are to rest humbly in the great privilege of seeing and obtaining the fulfillment of all the hopes of the prophets of the Old Testament, the preached good news, things that even the angels long to look, verses 10 through 12. All of that is in that wonderful word, therefore. 
Let's see what he has to say in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ that is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. What we are seeing in verses 13 through 21 here in chapter 1 is that though these exiles were grieved by their, by their suffering, they were grieved by their suffering because they were a people who stood out. They stood out. They, they looked different. Peter calls them exile strangers and sojourners and aliens for, for a reason. If they looked like everyone else for the most part, then they wouldn't stand out. But they, they stood out. But they didn't stand out because of, their, because of their race. They didn't stand out because of necessarily all of their cultural ways of food, clothing, jobs, home, etc., and family. But what made them stand out in such a way was the gospel. And because of the gospel, people opposed them. And we see this people in this passage as Peter continues to exhort them that they were standing out differently in their morality, in their virtues, by their religious beliefs. That made them stand out to the rest of the culture. Now, I know this sounds maybe like a dumb question, but what drives you? Sounds like a, one of those ridiculous car commercials, right? What drives you as they're flying around a mountain curve or something like that? But what drives you? Let me, let me narrow it down a little bit. What drives you to be different? What, what keeps you from sin? If you are a Christian, then why, if at all, do you want to be moral and good? Let me give a few answers. Maybe because of sheer pragmatism. 
being good and upstanding is the best way to live. We hold directly to the virtue, you reap what you sow. The principle, you reap what you sow. Do good and good will come to you. Yee. I believe that for most people, this is where they are. This is, this is where they, they live to be good and to live according to now their own version of good. Because now what was considered not or was considered good is now not good. And what's not good is called virtuous and good. Maybe you just want to be virtuous in the sense that you look good on the outside, it looks good on social media. Maybe it's to be spiritual and to be religious, to do good and to be good before God. So to, to love your neighbor, to love your enemies, to seek justice, to care for the orphan and the, and the widow and to feed the hungry, all of these things are are good, and, they're, and they're, they're biblical, but yet yet can our good works earn us a right standing before the Lord? What makes us different? What makes us different than our neighbors? Our neighbors who are, who are truly, for the most part, what we can see from the outside, that they're really good people, that they're really nice people, people that you... You trust, but what motivates us to be different, to be good, to be separate? This morning, I would like to help each of you, and including myself, to answer that very question from the Bible. But the Bible doesn't just say, be good. The Bible doesn't just say display virtue. The Bible doesn't say do your best on the external to conform yourself to a set of morals and ethics that makes you look good before the world. That's the problem with what's happening before us. We're seeing people shift based upon the changing virtues of the world. The Bible tells us to be holy. The Bible tells us to be good like our Father is good. So how are we to be good? How are we to be holy and obedient according to God's word? Is it, is it only by our, our sheer determination? Is it only by our, our, our pulling ourselves up by, our, by our, our bootstraps? This morning, I want to talk about what drives holiness? What drives obedience, good conduct? By looking at three central imperatives from this passage. Three central commands or exhortations from this passage. The first imperative we see in our passage this morning is in verse 13. Verse 13 says... Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
This is the first imperative that stands out. Set your hope fully on grace. Set your hope fully on the grace. Now, grace has already been mentioned. It's already been spoken. It's already been brought up to us in verse 10. It's also in, in another way, in a sense, by God's mercy in verse 3. His great mercy. God's grace, the grace that we are to set our hope in, is the very grace that the prophets prophesied about, that Christians now enjoy and delight in. That's what we talked about last week. And so in this way, the prophets were serving us. They were building us up by pointing us to the grace that would come through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which we now enjoy in its fulfillment in the new covenant, in the gospel as his people. This grace is the free, unmerited favor of God experienced in salvation. Verse 5, verse 9, and 10. But here it is an imperative a command by Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in the word of God, for us and for them to set your hope fully on grace. Fully on grace. So, so we're not going halfway on this. My kids have a book called Halfway Herbert. And Halfway Herbert does everything halfway. Let's not Halfway Herbert setting our Hope on grace. This is a grace that we, as verse 13 says, we will fully experience and enjoy at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we're pointed to our eschatological hope, right? The second coming of, of Jesus Christ. So when, when, when life gets hard, man wants to set their hope on something. Man wants to set their hope. They, they begin instantly looking because guess what? Hope in myself has failed. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to someone or I'm going to something to place my hope in. So whether it be a, a friend or a family or institutions or governments or businesses or education or doctors or hospitals, faith healers, religious leaders, whatever it is, man turns to them, they cling to them because we all need to find hope in something when our world begins to shake. We need to hold on and grab onto something. Yesterday when I was sitting in a, in a deer stand, at the tower stand, and, and the wind began to blow that afternoon, and I felt that, that sucker do this. And I was like, where do I grab onto if this thing begins to go? I was looking, grabbing a little, little piece of aluminum to hold onto. Thankfully, I didn't come to that. If you want to escape poverty, we're told to get an education, and that's the way out. Single mothers who are lonely, who want to be cared for, they have a hope in finding a good man to marry. And maybe you've been given a tough diagnosis, then the, the temptation is to put all of your hope into medicine and, and doctors and, and new medical technologies. Whatever the situation may be, it's only natural for us to look for something to rescue us or for someone to rescue us, for someone and something to put our hope in. Education, marriage, medicine, and good doctors are not bad things. In fact, they are really good. They are blessings from the, from the Lord. However, when we make them our greatest 
and only hope, then regardless of what you say or believe, functionally, those become your God. Functionally, they become your God and Savior. And unfortunately, the truth is, is that education, government, doctors, families, technology, spouses, and children really make bad gods. Because ultimately, in one way or another, they will fail you. And when the going gets tough, as we say, that's when we're tempted to misplace our hope. Or do we do this half hope thing, right? So we half hope in the medical technology, and then we half hope in the God. So when this starts to failing, we turn to the Lord. I don't think that's what Peter is saying. That all of our life is to be set fully on our hope is to be set fully on his grace. Misplaced hope is worthless. And brothers and sisters, if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, there is, we are living in a world filled with misplaced hope. Some of you have been there. Some of you have felt what it means to be let down by misplaced hope. You've, you've seen the, the agony in friends and family as they watch this hope that they've been standing on just crumble. But a hope that is set, a hope that is fully set and grounded and rooted in grace, brothers and sisters, is potent and powerful and will never fail. The hope that we have as Christians is a hope in the certainty of God. We know for certain that God's character is true. We know his plan for salvation and history is true. We know that his word is true. Hope is not blind. It's not. Hope in the gospel and hope in God's word, hope in God is not an opiate. It is truth. It is not wishful thinking. It is not blind, but hope is living. He has proved our hope is living and secure because of the resurrection of his son. Look back in the indicatives. You have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope isn't just for today. As it says, our hope in the grace is what? It's future. Our hope is for the future. We have this eschatological hope that one day as Christ returns, he will make all things new, including us. For those who trust him. So how do we firmly set our hope in this grace and no other things? Or not halfway? Peter answers this question first by saying, prepare your mind. He says, prepare your minds for action. The, a literal translation of prepare your minds for action is to Gird up the loins of your mind. 
gird up the loins of your mind. And they're like, hey, weirdo, what are you yelling about? Gird up your loins? What, the, what is that? Well, this is a physical image that everybody who read this in the first century, they would have understood. But we have pants, so we don't. And what they used to wear is these long robes, right? And that was their everyday dress were these, were these, were these long robes. And when there was a call for action, for, for, for battle, for, for work, a man would pull the, the robe up between his legs. He would wrap it around himself, tuck it in, and therefore he would be completely unhindered for movement. So, so, so this image ne doesn't necessarily uh, uh, translate for us, but, but maybe it's, hey, you need to tie your shoes. Hey, roll up your sleeves. Have the, the appropriate clothing, right? How many of y'all walked out the door this with a short sleeve shirt on and went, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. It's cold. During the Exodus, when, when God was, to, was, about to, was about to deliver his people out of Egypt, he told them to eat the Passover with their loins girded. Why? Because you need to be ready. Gird your loins and have your shoes on. Because at any moment you were going to leave Egypt. But we're not talking about physical battle. We're not talking about sports. We're not talking about going to work. We are talking about girding up the loins of our mind, preparing our minds for action. So this means to set your hope fully on the grace of God requires you to have mental preparation and resolve, right? We prepare ourselves mentally for what's to come, on how to set our hope on the grace of God. Minds that are ready and prepared, not just in the narrow sense of intelligence only, but minds that are, as Jesus told us, to love the Lord your God with all of your hearts, your minds, and your souls. With all your hearts, minds, and souls. That means with our, our whole being is captivated completely on grace. To fully set your mind on Christ, you prepare yourself. You prepare yourself by always trusting in God's grace. Fully devoting yourself to Him. Often when I feel myself tempted the most to sin, it is because I am not ready. It is because I have not prepared myself, like showing up to the gym with flip-flops on. Second, he tells us how to set our hope fully on grace, is to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Sober-minded or, or self-controlled, I think NIV says self-controlled. In the context of, of alcohol is the image that he's using here, of drinking, right? The effects of, of drunkenness affects every part of the human body. Judgment is clouded, to say the least. Reflexes are slowed way down. We do and we say things that we normally would not do. Now consider... Peter's illustration of being sober-minded in the context of the mind. 
the mind which controls and determines our actions. So be sober-minded. Don't let anything in your life and in your heart and through your mind that would cloud, that would impair, that would slow your mind to being prepared and being ready for action and setting your hope fully on grace. Brothers and sisters, we need to speak really clearly and carefully here because we live in a world that we have to be Christians, that we have to use our minds very clearly. And we have to be very discerning in this world and what is coming our way and what is being put in front of us daily. Things that may be all are etching at our sobriety and inebriating us slowly. There's so much surrounding us that inebriates our minds. If you are captivated by endless entertainment, then you are not being sober-minded. You are inebriated by the media. Maybe it's sports or just fantasy in together or gratifying uh, every part of the flesh. We have all of these different places that inebriates us. It's the whole plan. It's the whole plan by the evil one to sell us. To sell us through your mind first and then straight into the heart. So as an alcoholic or a drug addict who goes back for more and more, we are no longer sober-minded. Brothers and sisters, those things always taste good going down. They make us feel good for a while, but in the end, it always leaves us empty. Always leaves us empty. These temptations are crafty. They are precise. They are exact and enticing and seeks ultimately to diminish your hope and grace. And if we are not keeping our minds prepared and sober, then how do you expect to set your hope on grace? Set your hope on grace is an imperative. However, later in, the, in our section, our passage this morning, we, we are told why we are to set our hope, why our hope rests in God. It drives us then to set our hope in him. Because through Christ, verse 20, we, verse 21, are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that what? Faith and hope are in God. It's the knowledge of the truth of what he has done in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. That's what drives setting our hope in him. And if you have set your hope in his grace, then hope will lead to holiness. Hope will then lead to holiness, which moves us to our second imperative. Our second imperative says that we are called to holiness. We are called to holiness. Verse 14. It says, as obedient children, 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who, is, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, in our new birth, being born again, as it says in verse 3, in our new birth, our whole identity changes. It changes from, from foreigners who are a faraway people, Ephesians 2.13. It changes from being evil and wicked, wicked and, and a follower of evil and wickedness, Ephesians 2.1-3. It changes from being enemies, Romans 5.10 to being sons and daughters in Christ, Romans 8. Right here in verse 14, there is a sign of that calling. He calls them children. Now, this isn't a term of, of immaturity. It certainly can be. But this isn't used in a way of, of showing your immaturity, like you're a bunch of children. No, he says it is a term of affection and family, that you are children. You're children of, of God. In verse 3 and verse 17, God is called our Father. And again, this is a sign of affection and love and care and, uh, and adoption and sonship, but also authority over his children. So as his new sons and daughters, we are called to bear the likeness of our father, like father, like son. How is our father like then? Well, Peter tells us, our father is holy. Peter is quoting from Leviticus. We read Leviticus 11 this morning. And as he expl already explained, we are living in a time of fulfillment, but the same moral principle that of, of holiness applies to God's people who are to image and reflect His holiness in their conduct. The concept of holiness in the Old Covenant had to do with consecration or, or dedication of things or persons for the, for the service of God. They were to set these things or people apart. And so in that sense, when God says that he, is, that he is holy, it means that he is completely dedicated to himself. God is completely dedicated to himself, to the glory of his name. Everything he does is to that end. What is the chief end of God? To glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. Only those things or persons that, that were made clean or consecrated to God for his service, that is, they were made holy, could come and approach God's presence. Things then needed to be cleansed and for the temple use and people, meaning priests, needed to be cleansed and the people needed to be atoned for before they could come before the Lord. And God, in the Old Covenant, he provided for that ritual cleansing and the, through the sacrificial system. 
God chose Israel to be his people. God set his people apart. He made them separate. He made them distinct. And they were called to be a holy people. He made a covenant with them. And he gave them the law to show how they were to be holy. And how they were to be distinct. And how they were dedicated to him alone. In Exodus 24, 7, all of Israel then was sprinkled by with blood to ratify this covenant with the Lord. They were made distinct and separate in their ethics, in their morals, in their clothing, in their diet, in their holy days and rituals and worship and so many of other things. All of their conduct in obedience to God's law was to reflect God's holiness in a sinful world. Now, all of that background of the Old Testament and Old Covenant matters because this is what Peter is referring to. Even though we are not in the Old Covenant, we are a New Covenant people, we too, through Christ, through the sprinkling of His blood, have been set apart through Christ to be holy. And by the Holy Spirit, we are now His children. He is our Father, and He has set us apart to holiness, to be obedient to all of His commands, to be a holy people as He is holy. So the pattern of our holiness is not arbitrary. It's not the whimsical good of the world. It's the holiness of God. It's the holiness of God. It's His holiness and righteousness and goodness and justice and purity. And as exiles or pilgrims in this world, we are to live not according to the standards of those around us, but called us out of darkness to marvelous light as sons and But being holy and in our conduct does not come easy. Holiness is difficult. Patient and giving in seems oftentimes impossible to resist. Maybe it's because we haven't prepared our, our minds and girded our the loins of our minds and prepare for action, being sober-minded. Ortland, in his new book, is quoting him. He says, I'm not saying it's easy, that is, to resist temptation. He says it, it's hard, in fact. And, and In fact, I know of only one thing harder than obeying the Lord, and that is not obeying the Lord. Caving to my own impulses and then feeling the bitter aftertaste of regret and shame. That's harder. Brothers and sisters, we know that feeling if you have been in that moment. And we know that the flesh is still weak. And we know that the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the, the mind are constantly desiring sin. This is the obstacles to our holiness. In verse 14, he says, Do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is a, a warning to, to these Christians and to us to no longer live as you once did, but not just in those things, but to the passions, 
the very things that, that drive those, the, those actions, those, the very flesh that drives, the very desire. He says, don't live according to those things of your former ignorance. That is when you were, you were ignorant. I think this also shows that Peter was speaking to, the, to a more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians because Jews were ignorant of the Messiah, but they were not ignorant in his holiness. But Gentiles, they were ignorant. They came into the church raw. No idea what Christianity really is. Oh, you mean I can't wear this? Oh, you mean I shouldn't eat that anymore? I shouldn't do this anymore, right? Oh, man, okay. Good. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. They came in with, with, with sinful baggage, and they came in still with their, their religious r- rituals. And Peter is telling them that, hey, you are, you are new, and you're no longer controlled and manipulated by those former ignorances because, because now you have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to the truth of, of God's word. Brothers and sisters, this speaks directly to us because in the flesh there are still many chains of sin and old habits, old passions that still cling to us. Those things that we would be fearful if they were dragged into the light. But Peter says, do not be conformed to them, but rather be conformed to holiness, because in Christ you are no longer ignorant. Ignorance is not a place any of us want to be. We don't, we don't like being called ignorant. It means you don't, you don't know something about a particular topic. Well, in the area of holiness, we are no longer ignorant. We have been called to holiness. The second obstacle to holiness is from verse 18. He says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Futile means empty. It means worthless. And of course, Peter is referring to the ways of sin. The ways of sin that pass from generation to the generation. I find it very interesting here, and I think he's, he writes this very intentionally, is that there is, an, is, there is a strong contrast made, being made in chapter 1. The strong contrast is the feudal ways that you inherited from the world, from your fathers, to the glorious inheritance inherited in Christ. There's a strong contrast going here because he wants you to see, do you want this or do you want this? C.S. Lewis said, he said, would you rather continue to play and be content with a holiday at the sea or just stay and play with mud pies? Well, that's the choice we are making when we choose the futile, the empty, worthless ways inherited our forefathers, sin. compared to something that is glorious and that's something that's being kept, that's imperishable, that's undefiled and unfading for those who are born again. Some of you have had to bear the weight 
of believing that just because my parents were this way, fill in the blank with sin, then I will end up just like them. That I would just be another statistic of failure and statistics of abuse. Unfortunately, many have become their own self-fulfilling prophecy of self-destruction. But for some of you, because you were ransomed, you were called out by God, by His power. And by His power, you have shaken off those chains and the, the cyclical nature of that sin. So this is a reminder, you're not them. You're like your heavenly Father. He is working in you to make you more and more like his son. For every, everyone else, this points to our forefather Adam, who passed down a corrupt nature of sin that desires sin, that loves sin, that delights in evil. But, gospel, God has ransomed you. And therefore, sin is no longer has dominion over you. So what he's saying is, don't submit to that yoke of slavery that's already been taken off of you. Rather, pursue holiness like your, like your father. We are called to pursue holy lives according to God's word, to fight sin and to put it to death. But listen, the driving motive here for holiness is not just because God is holy, but that our Father is holy. Not just because God is holy, but our Father is holy. And He has called you to be His child, to be obedient children. His inheritance is glorious and it's eternal. This grace that we are setting our hope on shows us over and over in this fight that you are loved, that you are cared for, that you are His, and He is with us through every bit of it. And if you've ever been in this pursuit of holiness for all, you know how hard it is. And if you've continued the good fight for a while, older brothers and sisters and saints in Christ, I ask you to encourage your younger brothers and your younger sisters that as they continue to fight in their temptation and doubt, and they doubt the love and the promises of God as they continue to pursue holiness, I ask you this, has there ever been a time that Jesus has not brought you back when you messed up? The answer for me is no. <laughs> Resoundingly no. And encourage your brothers and sisters to keep going. Don't stop. Pick them up and bring them with you. Show them how to gird their loins of their mind and prepare for action. Show them how to be sober-minded when you see them inebriating themselves with the world and point them to the glorious, rich inheritance that we have in God and Christ that He has prepared for us. This might sound a little controversial, but I think you'll understand the point. The point here is not to be perfect. The end goal is Christ will make us perfect 
that he will accomplish in us. But the point here is to say, is for you to stay in the pursuit of holiness. Stay in the pursuit of holiness. Holiness that is driven by a loving Father. The third imperative from this passage is to live in fear. (laughs) You're like, what? Fear? That sounds pretty crazy. Because fear isn't the best motivator. It certainly isn't what sells in church today. This isn't exactly a very popular point. Many would say, hey, you should change that point. Make it sound different. Fear to us is what we experience maybe when we watch a scary movie or riding a roller coaster or in a moment of impending disaster. A negative emotion to be frightened or scared. But this command means something different. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So if if you are a Christian, meaning God is your father, then what does he say? He says, our father will judge impartially our conduct. God... Our Father is going to judge you according to your conduct, to what you have done. Meaning, are you pursuing holiness? This is a a true statement that each of us will be judged. So he says then, according to your life and in your life, conduct yourselves then in fear. Now, does that mean to be frightened by God, to run from God, and to hide from him? No. For those who are in Christ, then then we are not to be frightened. We are not to run and hide. No longer is that the case at all. If he is your father and your hope is set completely on Christ and in Christ, in his grace, then we do not live in terror before him, but rather the fear is a reverence. Now, we need to be careful here because because reverence is just watered down. Reverence has been been watered down and it has become almost meaningless because now most of us, when we think of of reverence, it is when we come into a, a sanctuary or a particular building, we're quiet and we don't wear our hats anymore or we don't drink coffee in them or something like that. There's meaning that there's a particular place that has a particular reverence. And, and that's true in, in some cases. But what Peter brings in here, the thing that we are to fear and be reverent about is that judgment is going to be had of all of our works and all of our deeds. We will be completely assessed. The kind of fear then that Christians are to have is a fear of knowing that everything will be brought into the light. And that produces a reverence or fear of God, our Father, and yet we can still 
be confident in Christ because it doesn't change anything we have already talked about. Let me illustrate it for you. A, a good driver, right? A, a, a good driver, right? A car driver, drives a car. A good driver has a healthy fear that at any moment they can be in a car accident. A healthy fear, not a fearful fear like, ah, ma, ma, but a healthy fear being a defensive driver, not looking at their dumb phone. That's a good driver. Staying, yeah, mostly around the speed limit, right? Speed limit. That's a good driver. And so they drive how? Knowing that an accident still can happen, they drive confidently. They drive carefully. Thank you, Miss Debbie. Soberly. Very good, right? Not holding a phone like that's, that's being drunk, right? You realize that, right? You're holding a phone driving. That's like what alcoholics do. But they're not holding a phone. But carefully and lawfully and defensively, confidence with a healthy fear keeps us from arrogantly justifying sin. Confidence with a healthy fear of the Lord's judgment keeps us from arrogantly justifying our sin. Fear does not contradict confidence in what is true. Fear does not contradict confidence in what is true because here's what's true. You ready? Verse, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That is what is true. And that is where our confidence lies, that you have been ransomed, that you have been bought with a price, but not some measly, dumb, perishing price of gold and silver, the things that we think mean the most. That stuff's perishing. That stuff's dumb. That stuff is worthless in God's economy. But you were bought, ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who is before all things. He is foreknown before all things. He is foreknown before the foundation of the world, meaning, as Paul tells us, that he is preeminent, and he is pre-existing, and he has always existed. Brothers and sisters, that is the price that was paid for your ransom. Gold and silver. Trash. Jesus' blood. He was made manifest. You know what that means? That means he took on flesh. He was incarnated. He condescended and was born into this world as a baby. A little bit of Christmas before Halloween, huh? I mean Reformation Day. And that baby grew into the man. And he died on a cross and he was raised from the dead. And he was given glory. And through him, verse 21, and through him, you were made a believer. Like it, not happenstance. 
You didn't trip and fall into it. But you were made a believer. God made you a believer through his son, meaning he made you have faith to believe. So brothers and sisters, as we are to live in fear, can you think of anything better to have confidence than in this good news? Because if you bring anything else in that fear to the judge, you've got nothing. You have nothing to stand on. Peter's not just saying, this is, what you, this is your confidence, but he's telling others that this is it. There's no other way, man. But the confidence in Christ. Can you think of anything better to have confidence than in this good news? Brothers and sisters, fear God and be obedient. Pursue holiness. Fear him, for he is your holy father. But listen, your confidence is not in your obedience. Your confidence is not in your obedience. You're not going to come to God and say, God, I came to the church X amount of times. Your confidence is only in Christ alone. We come knowing that we're going to be judged, that these things are going to come before us. And if it's not Christ that's your confidence, then you are condemned. But here's the free gift of grace. Christ. Unbeliever, if, if you have your confidence in anything else, if you have hope in anything else, if nothing, but worldly things, like those worldly hopes, they're good. Families are good. Parents are good. Spouses are good. These things are good. They're going to fail. But if your hope is fully set on grace, confidence in Christ, Unbeliever, you, you can have this confidence even today. There's no waiting. Repent of your sin. Trust in the work of Christ, the things that we have been talking about this morning. Trust in the work of Christ alone. And after the service, come up to one of the elders or any other church member and ask them and help for help. What in the world was he yelling at me for? And they will, I guarantee, they would love to walk you through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, these exhortations to hope and grace, and we'll close up in just a second. These exhortations are to set our hope in grace, to pursue holiness, and to live in fear. Our right conduct in holiness and fear is driven with a fuel of God's grace that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You see, our obedience is not in order to please God. It's not to placate his wrath or judgment, or is it just to live virtually before the world? God is pleased in his son and in his sacrifice through saved, and we have been adopted so that now God is pleased with you. Our righteousness is his righteousness. And that's what drives our obedience. Let me close with this quote from Luther because he understood how it is to give into despairing thoughts. My temptation is this, that I think I don't have a gracious God. This is because I am still caught up in the law. 
It is the greatest grief, and it produces death. God hates it. And he comforts us by saying, I am your God. I know his promise. And yet should some thought that isn't worth a, Luther's language, worth a fart, nevertheless overwhelms me. I have the advantage that our Lord God gives me of taking hold of his word once again. God be praised. I grasp the first commandment which declares, I am your God. I'm not going to devour you. I'm not going to poison you. We ought to know that above all righteousness and above all sin stands the declaration, I am the Lord, your God. Brothers and sisters, do you know what drives your obedience? Is it grace? Is it the truth from God's word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Truly, you are our Father, and the implications of that are astounding. I pray, pray that we would rest upon your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, that would drive our obedience and setting our hope on that grace and to live in fear in this world, staying away from sin. Lord, would you help us and continually give us grace to live obediently and confidently in the gospel. We pray that you would be with us now as we respond. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.